Hi everybody, you are listening to the third episode of Camology, the Cambridge podcast. And today I'm interviewing the fabulous Kate Carruth in the equally fabulous surroundings of the Farmers Club here in Bury. So Kate, with any self-respecting podcast uh, and any interviewer has to ask about your backstory. Right, so... I am uh, starting from the very beginning. Yes, I was born in Essex. I, uh, although my father is from Bury St Edmunds, so and we came back here when I was quite young. So I've been in Bury more of my life than anywhere else, and completely love the area. I, uh, when I was three, someone asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I told them I wanted to be a cuckoo clock. Uh, my father was an English teacher, and he knew that meant I would be a writer. And in fact, right from really quite early on, I was telling lots of stories. Let's Pretend was my favourite game. So I was always in that space. Now, when I was 13, and in those days, you were choosing which, which subject you wanted to do for your O-levels. And I know it's now GCSE, so long way back. Um, and the head of year was saying, well, what do you want to do? you know, what do you want as a career? And it was, still in my, it was still my ambition to be a writer. So I said, wanted to be a writer. And he said to me, and I know he was trying to be helpful. He said, you, writing doesn't make money, so you'll need to have another income. And, which is absolutely true. If you want to be a fiction writer, it makes damn all money. Um, you would need to have some kind of other income. But being 13, what I actually heard was, you can't be a writer, get a proper job. So um, I've always been of the, uh, the t I'm a bit of a people pleaser, I like to do what people expect of me, so that's what I did. I got O-levels, A-levels, got a degree uh, in maths, because I always wanted to be a writer, don't, don't yeah. ask, um, and then got a job did, in industry. So you've never stopped a thought, well I'm, I really want to be a writer, but I'm going along this path, I can keep going along this path. Was there nothing in your head to say, what am I doing? No. Um, because I wanted to do what people expected, but also because actually I, I like challenges and I like changes and doing different things. And I never stopped writing. I was always still writing stories and writing fiction, but I was doing it for my pleasure and as a hobby, rather than actually going out there and, and trying to make a living from it, make it a career, which from, a, from the point of view of writing for fiction is probably was the best decision to make. It is extraordinarily difficult to make a living as a, as a fiction writer. Um, pretty well nobody does it. I mean, the J.K. Rowling story that everyone cites... So it's the top 1% or 1%? Oh, not even 1%.00001%. She is one writer. Mm. Um, and the number of writers who are doing it as a hobby, struggling to even find a publisher, is many, many more than that. So I was always writing. but Could I was you self-published... Uh, four books when you were... I've now self-published four. Yes, I'm still writing. The fifth one I'm just on the second, dra the second uh, draft of at the moment, so that'll probably, probably come out sometime next year. Um, and I've always done that as, as, as a hobby and as an interest, but I was pursuing a, um, a professional career. So I started working in industry. I worked for um, 
well, it was part of Express Dairies, for those who go far enough back to remember the Express Dairies, who were the original doorstep delivery milkmen, mm. and uh, working in their foods division in supply chain. So I was a planning manager for a cottage cheese factory, and um, then went on to, um, from that, that took me into management consulting. Okay. So originally as a con consultant for other supply chain companies, so working in other dairy companies, doing work for, um, who else did I work for? I know I worked for an ice cream factory, which was awesome. I saw Vianetta being made. That was really exciting. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's one of my last dreams. That oh, it's fantastic, fantastic. Vianetta Soleros, I saw the Magnum machines, all those kinds of things. I get, they're individually made, aren't they, by artists? Is they're, that they're made by goblins. Made yeah. By yeah, there's a little goblin with a hammer making the ice cream the right shape. And... <laughs> Can you tell I'm a writer? <laughs> what type of so, hat would that goblin be wearing there? Oh, well, a little white hat. You have to wear a white hat and a hairnet because it's, it's a food environment. True. And uh, blue gloves? Yes, yes, and a snood, of course. Fantastic. So, <laughs> And also the factory in Lowestoft, which is the bird's eye pea factory. Seen every pea being scanned and things like that just amazing I, I saw some amazing factories and I still I'm still a sucker for a factory Excellent. so um I love I've always been interested in how things are made and how things work would you be a so, fan of a distribution center oh love a distribution center yeah. I know it sounds really sad but uh I was on twitter the other day and there was a, a free guided tour of the uh, distribution center or the no the fulfillment center at amazon Ah, right, that's micro-pick. Yes, mm -hmm. so I did actually work in a warehouse, but it was, it was the next stage up. Ah. So a fulfilment warehouse is that last one. Somewhat, you, you've ordered your copy of my book. There's someone who's going to go find it on a shelf, stick it in a box and send it out. So that's fulfilment. I did the next step up, which is... Um, so Express Dairies would send a skip of milk, a bottle of milk for mm. the supermarket. And we would put it into... Right, well, this supermarket needs four bottles this supermarket needs 12 bottles this supermarket needs eight bottles and you you move it you move the big pallets of milk mm. into the different distribution okay. locations and then load them on the lorries and send them out so that was one of the first when I was a graduate trainee it was one of the roles I did down in Brentwood mm. so um in a, in a warehouse which I don't think is there anymore but uh, but yeah so I lots of varied things that I did during that time which interested me and excited me and it was fun to do. And it, it hadn't crossed my mind then to be, a, to be a writer as a profession. I kind of, that wasn't going to be possible. Sorry, so I'd so kind of so, given so up on that. So go back a couple of steps. So it was exciting because it was the, the challenge of it? It or? was a challenge. It was, um, I was doing well at it. So it was, I, you know, it was people were ego, pleased. People knew what I did. They understood it. It was conventional. Being a writer is a bit unconventional. And this, there's a theme in my life of doing what people expect of me. That, um, and therefore, the conventional proper job, working in industry, that was, you know, people, people got that. They understood that. Um, and I'm the youngest of three, and I was a bit competitive. And, you know, all of those things that drive you to make decisions, particularly when you're young. Um, but when you look back on you, you think, what the hell was I thinking? Why didn't I just say sod you to the teacher and go do what I really wanted to do yeah. you know been a youngest as well I know exactly what you're talking about yeah oh <laughs> have yeah. some advantages some disadvantages so 
Do you still play the baby then? Um, not it? anymore. I actually, I from quite early on in my adulthood, not as a child, but in my adulthood, I wanted to be treated as a grown-up. Sometimes it's it's quite funny. Sometimes my sister, who's four years older than me, still supervises me, um, which winds me up yeah. dreadfully. Um, uh, I, I do. I clearly remember for my father's 80th birthday, we took him to Dublin. He always wanted to go. And she supervised me through the airport. She said, make sure you've got your passport and make sure you've got your boarding pass at the gate. And it's like, oh dear. I fly every week. Because at the time I was working somewhere like Switzerland. I fly every single week. I really do know my way around the airport. But are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, yes. Have you got everything? <laughs> it was quite funny. Did she it pat you really... on the top of the head? No, that... she's n- no, no, no. She would, she'd get, she can't reach. She's t- I'm taller than she is. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, yeah, she would have. She would have. No, she wouldn't do that. She was. I mean, again, it's not. It's not patronising. It's just that uh, the the dynamics of sisters, when there's that sort of that sort of gap, because um, of course the difference between a four year old and an eight year old is massive. Mm-hmm. The difference between two people in their fifties is nothing. <laughs> but um, but old habits die hard. So, but yes. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, where else did I in my in my industry days did I see this pea factory? Um, I saw a factory that made plastics, extruded plastics, the kind of film that you put round, not yeah. cling film, which is which is sticky, but the the kind of things that make crisp packets and that wrap round cigarettes and yeah, those yeah. kinds of things. That was amazing. Saw that in three different countries. Seeing the different cultures between different nationalities was amazing. Yeah. So, so is that kind of so the work ethic, or how, how did that manifest? I, I always thought the, the best way to describe it was in their attitude to health and safety. So there were three factories for this company. There was one in the UK, there was one in Germany, and there was one in France. Now these, these machines, just to, to imagine, imagine 200 metres mm. and a whole series of fast-moving rollers. And basically, at one end, you put in um, plastic grains. They're heated, and then they're stretched. Yes. And the rollers are running at probably 400 miles an hour. If someone fell into a machine, they'd be out the other end, dead, of course, before someone could hit a stop button. So it was always a... It, it, and, and basically, same machines in these three different factories. In France, you'd go, and they'd... It, there were the machines on the floor. You could walk right up to them, and there would be the French amusingly telling you about all the people who'd already gone through and lost arms and that kind of thing. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, like, but, you know. And you went to the canteen and you had a beer at lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> so that was France. In England, you can imagine what England was like. Cages, red buttons, signs, hard hat area, nobody goes near, only people with keys. Not, <laughs> you know, Germany, line on the floor. Don't cross the line. Ooh. And so you'd say to Germany, you'd say to the German team, well, what happens if someone does cross the line? And they look at you like you're bonkers and say, well, nobody would. Mm. And that's... So, so there's the very laissez-faire um, re- re- reaction of the French of, well, who cares? You know, if you're stupid enough to walk in, well, it's all quite, quite amusing. The, the, the absolutely classic nanny state of the UK, mm. that nobody can be trusted to have any common sense at all, and the Germans, where they just don't break rules. <laughs> so the idea to them of breaking, you know, walking across the line where it's dangerous is just ridiculous. Why would you? Mm. So that, that was quite... Just, but those were the kinds of things that you saw between the, between the different cultures. And that um, was big... And that was sort of a 
big part of it for you, seeing, you know, the work's the work, but it's the culture's... Yeah, the... You lo- and every country I worked in, and I was, I mean, I was very fortunate. Most of my work, actually, in the latter time, I worked mostly with government, in the UK government. It's quite difficult to work for a foreign government because you don't actually understand their, their governance system. But for the UK government, I did quite a lot in the latter days. But in industry, I got to go to a lot of different places. I spent two years in Holland. I spent two years in Switzerland. You know, coming home at the weekend. Mm-hmm. But, but basically living there during the week. Um, I spent a year and a half in Blackpool. It's yes. quite different. Um, I went out to Malaysia at one point. Um, I nearly ended up in Argentina, but uh, that was in 2001, and I was supposed to be going in October, and of course in the September was 9-11, and all flights for that company, they said, no one's going to fly, we'll do everything by, um, by remote. So I ended up not going, but that mm. was just purely because of there was such a heightened threat we level at that, that point. Now, don't we? Yeah. But, yeah. It had, oh yeah, I mean, it was about three or four months before... Um, before anything happened. But then, yes, France, Germany, Portugal, most of those sorts of European countries I, I got to go to. Um, and I'm just very, very fortunate mm. that you get that opportunity when you are consulting. And it's not, it's not the, the, the jet-setting, glitzy life that people think it is, because you spend a lot of time in hotels, which all look the same, and airports, which all look the same. And you're um, probably on your... Were you on your own for quite a few days? Yeah, so you, depends. You'll work, you'll tend to, I mean, I work for big business consultants. So some of the big firms, I work for PwC, for IBM, for, um, in the end, PA Consulting, which of course got Cambridge office. Um, so you tend to work in teams. It varies from project to project. So you weren't always completely on your own. Um, so every now and again I was. But then there's only so many times when you're in a team when there's say five or six of you and you're there for three or four months or six months or 12 months, only so many times in a week you will want to go out and see each other in the evening when you've seen each other all day Mm. Um, so that was where I used to write writing is an incredibly portable hobby so I would write in hotels, I would write in airports I would write in on trains so you you were writing so you were just uh, writing short stories. Were you, were you uh, uh, I was I was working on the books, but not with any te- intent at that point of publishing them. It was just purely for my own pleasure and amusement. I was just writing them because I was interested. And even uh, I think in the early days, I wasn't even really writing complete stories. So my writing style is not start at the beginning, go through until you get to the end, and then stop. I would, I'd have a a piece of an idea in my head, and I'd write that. And then it wasn't until later when I sort of thought, there's actually a whole book here, that I, I sort of worked out, well, I've got this piece of story and that piece of story and that piece. How do I make that all join together? Mm. And then I worked it out as a plot. And I suppose I first really mapped it out as a true... The first book as a true plot was about 2001. And then... Started to think, well, I'm going to seriously sit down and turn this into a book. So that was two, sorry, 2001. 2001, yeah. And that was when I really thought, this is okay, I really have got something that could be a book. And I finished it. It's hard to say how long it takes to write a book because a book like that, I'd been writing it for <laughs> 20 years, 25 <laughs> years. But actually, yeah, yeah. from the time I thought, right, okay, I'm actually going to turn this into something, that was about 2001. And I 
finished it in the first draft in 2003 and thought, I might see if I can do something with this and did a little bit then of, of making submissions to publishers and got some very complimentary but rejection letters. Mm. You know, we thought this is really well written, but we really like the idea, but... Yeah. And I got a few of those. Um, and then just thought, oh, well, it's never going to happen and just stopped trying. Just carried on writing, but stopped trying. And it wasn't until 2005. I suppose there's perhaps those polite, standardised knockback letters just... Yeah, now I, do, I'm fortunate... Do you your confidence? Yeah, it's, well, it's difficult, because yeah. it does knock your confidence, because you get, you know, you sent off 50 manuscripts, you got nothing back from some, you get some quite terse things back from others. Sorry, we don't publish things like this. We don't publish, you don't publish fantasy. And I'm like, but it's not fantasy. Um, you know, so you get quite a bit of that. Um, I'm fortunate, a friend of mine works in publishing, not in fiction publishing, she works in educational publishing, but she said that actually, as a general rule, a publisher won't say something is good if it isn't. Mm. So those who did come back and say, it's well written, you'd obviously taken the trouble to look at it beyond the cover letter and gone, no. Mm. Um, those had been complimentary. So I knew then, okay, so I can write. I have actually got a skill here, um, but yes, it was it was discouraging to hmm. say the least. Um, and that was when I first started to think, well, actually, this isn't this isn't going to happen. Hmm. This is never going to happen for so me. Two thousand and three. About two thousand and three, yeah. And then two thousand and five, everything changed for me in my life. It did, not just about the writing, but everything. Everything changed because. Uh, when was it? November 2005, I found a lump mm. in my breast. I'd had pain for some time, but I was doing a lot of running at the time. I'd just done a half marathon, that kind of thing. And I just thought, oh, you know, not the right sports bra. Um, but then in the November, I found a lump, went to the GP, um, who said, oh, I was what, 38? Yes, 38. She said, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. Won't be anything, but we will refer you anyway because let's just be safe. Because at 38, it, it, certainly in those days, 38 is very, was very young to be having anything that was a problem. And even now, 9 out of 10 lumps are benign. There's nothing wrong. But we'll refer you just in case. Now, it just so happened by the time all of this had happened and the doctor had seen me and all of that kind of thing, Christmas was in the way. So it was January 2006 when I actually had the mammogram. And they sat down with me and said we need to now do an ultrasound and we need to do a biopsy. Now, that's your first sign that there's something there. But again, still, it's 9 out of 10 are benign. But she said, I could be wrong, but I'm 99% sure there's something here. Okay. And that was the 16th of January. She said, can you come back on Friday because we'll have the results of your biopsy. And the only reason I remember these dates so clearly is the 20th of January, which was the Friday, was also my birthday. What a present. Yes. So I went back and they said... Yes, it's cancer. Yes, we need you in surgery next week. Um, I actually had another biopsy that day because they could see something in the armpit as well. So they needed to uh, explore that. So I actually had a needle, a, a needle biopsy in the armpit, which doesn't really take anaesthetic particularly well, on my 39th birthday. Not great fun. Not the best birthday I've ever had. Um, so, yes, for, for those who kind of 
know these things about cancer. What it turned out that it was uh, grade one, which is slow growing. Hmm. So it had been there a while because it was a stage 3C. So that means it was into the armpit. It was one hop from stage four cancer is when it's hit the vital organs. So it was one hop from there. I was in hospital within a week. I had a lumpectomy, which is where they remove the tumour. Then I had six months of chemotherapy. I had radiotherapy. Um, and all of the symptoms that go with that, I lost my hair, felt lousy for six months, um, on and off work. Mm. Work were absolutely fantastic. This so was PA. On and off work. Wow, well, do you even consider being... I did go back because... After the first round of chemo, I suddenly thought, I'm just sitting here and I'm just being a sick person and I can't be doing with that. Mm. So I went and I asked them if I could come back and do something. They, their company doctor said, yes, come back, but don't do consulting because you're out in the field. If you're not feeling well, it's really difficult to say to a client who's paying a bill, sorry, don't feel like it. Um, so I did an internal role. I did, a, I did a stint in their marketing department publishing a magazine for them. So that was my first, prop was it my first experience of business writing? Yeah, I think it was. I'd done some project management in a marketing project, but I'd never done corporate writing. Mm. So that was my first experience of that. And it was done as a fictionalised series of stories using future futurology, future technologies. So I wrote a series of little short stories about someone who was dealing with, you know, um, business resilience technologies of 2020 and things like that. This is 2005, so long way ahead in the future then. Um, but yes, I went back to work. But it, it also changed my attitude to writing. I, the, the, this whole thing about life's too short that people say in that off-the-cuff way, you realise, yeah, really is. Really is. I might we, not be around. Forget, why do we forget that? Because you obviously had stuff that's happened to you mm. and then you know stuff that happens to all of us and you have you're in that moment where you really 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 feel it's too short and then yeah we kind of for, for forget that reality and just go you know one could potentially go back to old ways old habits old some of it i think is probably the it couldn't happen to me never crossed my mind at 30 in my you know my mid to late 30s that i would get seriously sick mm. You know, I spent so much time behind the wheel of a car, I thought if I was going to die young, it was going to be in a car, which statistically is still the most likely. Um, so there's that, although we all know there is that risk, there's also the, if you, if you spend your life thinking it's going to happen, it's going to happen, that's no way to live. Mm. So you pop that to one side. But I, there were things that I'd always said, one day I'll do, that I then thought, in that year, I thought, sod it, I'm going to do it. So my, my then partner and I booked a holiday to go to Pompeii for when my chemo finished as something to look forward to because it was somewhere, you know, one of these days we'll go and see mm. Pompeii. So we, we did that. Um, we did, I had my 40th birthday in Egypt because mm. I'd always said I wanted to see Egypt before I was 40 and had never got around to it because I was always too busy and my partner didn't want to go. And so then I thought, sorry, I'm going to go. Mm. Went with a group of, of girlfriends and had my 40th birthday there. Um, that sounds fun. That was great. Mm. Walked on Hadrian's Wall, uh, which I'd always said I wanted to do. Th those were the things I did in those three or four years. And I self-published my first book. Publishers weren't going to go for it because there just wasn't enough market there for that, for that kind of book. So I self-published it. And I 
probably sold 50, 60 copies. Not massive amounts, mm. but the people who read it liked it. And while I was on chemo, I wrote the second one. So the second one came out the year later. And I've, as you said earlier, I've now published four. Mm. Um, and the fifth one I'm just finishing off now. So the first three came out quite quickly, one after another, because I'd all written all of those pieces. And then I had to seriously get on and do the hard graft to get the others to happen. Um, and one of them's a set of short stories. <coughs> and then I've got... Um, I've got three that are full-length novels, all of all of a kind of a series. So it's a bit of an epic, this thing. Yeah. Um, so um, the new Harry Potter, is it? I'd love it to be the new Harry Potter, mm. but um, experience tells me it, there's a combination of luck and hard graft to get a book in front of the right people at the right time for it to appeal mm. in the right way. Um, and actually, it's yeah. not something I've ever. I've ever done, done the hard graft for, because other things took me away from that and interested me and things like that. So, um, but yeah, so that was, that was my two thousand and five, two thousand and six. I went back to work. Um, life ticked along in that sort of way that it does. Um, and then, when when did things really start to make a shift again? Probably. 20, 2014 was the next big shift for me, and that was when... Um, so my father died in the summer, just as I was starting a new project for work, which turned out to be a very um, challenging project. It was really quite a difficult environment, very stressful, a lot of pressure, a lot of demand. Rewarding, loved it. Loved with the people I was working with, loved the project, but very, very demanding. And over the course of a year, I burnt out. So I took a sabbatical from work, and um, while I was, it, the the idea was I would finish the next book, which was just still waiting to be done, still waiting to be done. So it was to go away and just do some writing. Mm. And while I was doing it, I stumbled by chance, not not stumbled. It was someone who was already on my radar, but but he kind of came back onto my radar. It was a, a a chap who was a life coach. His name's Pete Cohen. And he got in touch with me and was saying um, he was running a weight loss program. Okay. Now, one of the side effects of chemo, of the lifestyle I was living, was I was very overweight. I was, God, 15 half stone, 15, 16 stone, something like that. Very overweight, with all of the health risks that yeah. come with that. And I joined his weight loss program and lost six stone. That's incredible. So um, I knew that the, the method he worked, that he used, worked. And the thing about it was it wasn't a diet, it wasn't a scheme, it wasn't a follow my rules. It was, yeah. a, it, was a, it was life coaching. It was giving me the mindset I needed to make the choices that were the right choices for me. And he was, as well as the weight loss program, he did a general life coaching program. And I... I was part of that, and it was, he did a, he used to do weekly broadcasts, and then you'd do a, on a topic, and he did, do, you know, goal setting, and confidence, and uh, dealing with fear, and those sorts of things, he did something, while I was on that sabbatical, he did something on your life's purpose, small, which is, small subjects, yeah, yeah, huge, huge subject, 
And he always laughs and says, you know, if he's doing a... He's a keynote speaker as well. So if he's doing a keynote speaking and he wants to calm a room down, he just says, you know, what's your life purpose? What are you here for? And you can just, you know, you can hear the tumbleweed <laughs> because everyone's going, oh, God, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm on this planet for. So to help people, he asked a series of questions, like any good coach. And one of the questions was, if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? And I knew. If I knew I couldn't fail, I'd quit my job, I'd be a writer. That was in my head. And I started building plans around, I will retire early. I'll take early retirement. Writing makes no money. I'll retire early. So I want to, when I'm 55, I'll take my pension and then I'll write as this kind of hobby, hobby business. Well, I met Pete a little bit later. Uh, yes, probably a, little, a few months later that, that same year. That would have been the April... Yes, April 2016. I mm. met him for the first time. At a, he did a meet-up for people who were in his coaching group and was chatting to him and was saying, you know, my life's ambition, I've always wanted to be a writer, but of course writing doesn't make any money, so what I'll have to do is do it as, you know, when mm. I can take early retirement. And he said to me, oh, well, I'll have to see what we can do about that. And It's amazing how these stories just, they gather weight and they yeah. just define yeah. Just to find it's, it's, when I look at it as a total story, it's, it's quite funny, amazing how these things happen. But, but yeah, so Peter says, we'll have to see what we can do about that. And it was the first time I'd met him. I didn't know him very well. And I thought, yeah, 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 I heard it all before. He's one of those. <laughs> you know, one of those people who, who, who pretends to wave the magic wand and talks a good talk and, you know, all, all talk, mm. no delivery, except that he phoned me the next day. And said, right, okay, so for my coaching group, I'd like to do a journal. Would you write the introductory section for me? Okay. And in my head, I, so I'd gone back to work by this time. Another massively challenging project. Because my father had died, I'm taking care of my mum. I've got, you know, life stuff going on, all of that. Mm. And in my mind, I'm going, too busy, too busy, too busy. And then there's this part of me going... But what if? And I was flattered that he'd asked me out of all the people that he could reach out to. He's very well connected. He used to be on TV. You know, he's got, you know, he's friends with Ben Shepherd. He's friends with Andrea McLean. You know, these are the people he pops round for dinner with, you know. Nice. And I'm going, woohoo, TV celebrity. I'll say yes. Hmm. Don't know how I'm going to do it. I'll find a way. <laughs> so I wrote, the, I wrote that introduction for him. It's like 12 pages. Introductory guide to his particular journal. And he said, great, would you help me with something else? Would you help me with something? I've never stopped working with him. No. So he is my coach, he is my friend, he is my client. He... Hmm. But what that did, the reason that was so pivotal for me, was that I suddenly saw writing in a different way. All the writing I'd done was fiction. And suddenly I thought, this is a business who doesn't have the time to do their own writing. That would make me money. Mm. I could do something with that. I have a business opportunity there because I can write. He, he can write, but he doesn't want to. Yeah. I could be helping businesses like his create something amazing. So over the course of that year, my mind started to change. And I said, well, you know, maybe that five, six years ahead, what I do is I set up a writing for business business. Mm. You'd think I could do better with words than writing for business business. But that was in my mind. And then 
I was at another event for his coaching group for My365, and one of his guest speakers um, I was chatting to over lunch and was saying, you know, my long-term goal is I'll do this, I'll do that. And he said, well, what's stopping you? I hmm, don't know, no good reason. And decided on the spot that April the following year I'd quit my job and I'd start the business. So I formed my business. On, I handed my notice in on the 3rd of April 2017, started the business on the 3rd of, April, 3rd of May 2017, and that was the, the, the idea was I'd be a copywriter. Mm. People would come to me, they'd, write, uh, they'd want me to write a blog or a website or an article, or fine. And very quickly, that morphed because I'd write the blog, I'd hand it back, and mm. for anyone who is a small business owner, you know what happens next. You pop it in your in-tray. Guess what? That's where it stays. Now, I'd spent 20 years as a consultant making things happen for businesses. And I saw that happening and went, sod that for a game of soldiers. Would you like me to set it up on your website? And that was where the idea of content alchemy came from. So the idea of the business is not just, we'll write you a blog or we'll write you an article. But if you need us to, we'll do it, we'll take care of it for you. So if someone wants a brochure, we write the brochure. We talk to a designer who does the design. We talk to a printer who does the print, and we coordinate all of that. So that mix of project management, I've got writers who work for me, I've got designers who write for me, they're all freelancers, so they're running their own businesses, and together we work to create something for a, for a business owner. And that's the, that's the goal of the business. Yeah, like you said, just getting stuff done, not just having lots of good feelings about, oh, yeah. I must do a blog, I must do this, and then it falls off the edge of the cliff because... I, I do a lot of networking as a business, and when you talk to people, the number who say, I need to do more with my content, I know I should do more, but I never have enough time, or I don't know what to do, or I don't know how to start, or I, you know, or... Or perhaps don't, because I, I, perhaps don't see that there is, uh, that there is gold in what they do, because I just do it, you know, I mean, I, I could... I could just talk for hours about, you know, tradesmen I've seen. They don't really, you know, they just do their... It sounds, it sounds daft, but I remember seeing a, um, a bricklayer. Mm. Brick, you know, it's laying bricks. But what he, what, you know, the level of uh, detail he went to, the fact that he took absolute pride in his work, mm. but he didn't think anything of it. And it's, good, it's a, good, a good analogy... Because nobody appreciates the skill of a bricklayer yeah. until they've tried to lay bricks themselves. Mm. And then you go, oh my God, this is... Where's all this mortar going? It's all <laughs> on the floor. Why is none of it staying on the brick? <laughs> and how do you get those lovely... Neat... Until you do it yourself, you don't realise just how skilled these things mm. are. It's the same with paint. Same with paints, painting or, you know, anything like anybody that. Can, anybody can paint. Anyone yeah, can paint yeah. a wall until you find out that you've painted the wall, the floor, the curtains, your hair. <laughs> um, all of that. All of those things. And every skill is the same. Every skill is the same. So with the content, is that the, uh, the written word? But are you perhaps annotating pictures as well? Or, or how, how does that fit with perhaps dictating vlogs? How does, or... I... I've looked at definitions of content, and there's plenty in dictionaries and things like that, but the, con but the 
But the actual um, definition I like best is that content is anything that adds value to your audience. So it doesn't have to be written. Say that again. Content is anything that adds value to an audience. Mm. Me sitting here with you, doing a podcast, someone out there will be sitting thinking, I can't do what it is that I dream of doing because somebody somewhere years back told me I couldn't. And this will add value to them because they'll realise they can quit their job, mm. start their business, uh, do whatever it is that they dream of doing. So a podcast is content. So I can, um, uh, with Pete, I help him with his online training courses. So for each of those, we do a worksheet, we do written content, we do um, videos, we do audios, we do all of those pieces. Mm. And the role is to coordinate that. So that's one thing that we might do. That's a form of content. So training is a form of content. I do my own online courses. Um, yes, podcasts, uh, videos, Facebook Lives. Because there's such uh, an opportunity all of now that. to get all this content out there, you know, to, yes. and, and, and to inspire people, to add value. I mean, it's, we kind of, I, I mean, I forget it sometimes that we've got all these devices around us and we can put, well, there's no barriers, there's no barriers. We it's not, none of it's difficult. None mm. of it's difficult. If, you, if you're sitting there listening to this thinking, I'd love to do my own podcast, you actually don't need very much to be able to do it. So what, what, what we've got in front of us is an iPad. We'll show, show how easy it is. It's an iPad, it's um, an app called Anchor, mm -hmm. and the app cost me zero pence. Yeah. And it's an old iPad, so there isn't, there is nothing kind of... There's, there's, I mean, there's, as you get, you know, as you get a bigger following and you might be in a position where you think, well, maybe I want a better microphone or maybe I want something a bit fancier to do the editing or well, all of fancier. those sorts of things. Like so, a special office or something like that. But. You see, I'm 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 a super gadget freak, so I'd be uh, I'd be immediately thinking about the microphones and the uh, and the device you use for recording, rather than the office that you have to do the recording in. That's probably my so, ego talking there. Yeah. Well, no, not necessarily. You just it's more about the space and the environment you work in rather than the the technology that you use. So, but everybody's different. Everybody's different. But there's a whole range of different things that people can do. And it's, it's one of the big barriers is that everybody thinks it's got to be a particular narrow field of things. And actually, there's a huge range of ways you can get communication out there. People freak out with, oh, well, if I'm going to grow my business, I've got to do live videos. Because it's the, it's the thing. You know, everyone does video live streaming. Mm. No, you don't. Mm. No, you don't. If your audience doesn't watch videos, then of course you don't need to do them. What's the point? So it's all about... It, and this, this anything that adds value to an audience mm. is really important because it's also the foundation of making decisions about what your content is. Because if you know who your audience is and you know where they perceive value, then you know what your content is. So um, you, as a podcast producer... As a, you know, if we look at that as a business, what's valuable to you or what's valuable to your audience will be different from what is valuable to the audience of a bricklayer. Mm. For someone there, they're looking for a beautiful brick wall, they're looking for a lovely construction, something that gives them pleasure every time they look at it. 
you're looking for something that inspires, mm. that excites people. And that tells you what sort of content you need to be producing. So for a bricklayer, yes, it's a website, but it's a website with tons of photographs of beautiful walls and beautiful designs. And for yours, it's about snippets of podcasts. They're both content. It's just about thinking about what does your audience want, what's valuable to them, and therefore, what does that mean you should be doing? It's getting into that mindset of the audience, isn't it? Mm. And it's about getting out of your own way. <laughs> because we all do it, we all go, you know, why, why is anybody going to be in the slightest bit interested by what I have to say? We all do it. Mm. You know, why is, why is my blog going to be of any more interest? Because all I'm doing is keeping, you know, very basic things about how to write a website or how to write blogs or how to do an online training course. Who am I to say I know anything about it? That's what goes on in my head and that's what goes on everybody's head. Didn't uh, Peter Cohen write a book saying, shut, shut, is it a similar thing? Shut the duck up, yeah. yes. Like yeah, that's, that's his, it's his analogy for the monkey mind, for the chimp paradox. <laughs> um, it's the, they're all the same thing, the internal voice that's telling you you're not good enough. And he, he uses the analogy of a duck. Quack, 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 mm. quacking away. So shut the duck up. Yeah. There are a lot of ducks in my house now because yeah. <laughs> I've been working with him for four years, as you can imagine. Tons of ducks in my house. <laughs> so we had to take a small break for a recharge and a drink. So we were, where we left it, Kate, was we were talking about, quack, quack, quack. We were talking about ducks. Talking about ducks, yeah. yes. Ducks, yes. Vianetta, the whole, we've covered loads yeah, of Yeah, we have. We haven't talked about giraffes yet, yeah. but, <laughs> sorry, that's just a, I have this thing about giraffes. I like giraffes. Well, my ears so. picked up because I was in Marks and Spe uh, John Lewis the weekend trying right. to find some giraffe, um, inspired uh, presence. Giraffe inspired presence. Yeah, so, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah it wasn't successful, but uh, anyway. <laughs> That's a conversation for another time, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, so we were talking about the fact that people get in their own way yeah. when it comes to content mm. because they don't believe that what they've got to offer is of value, is unique, yes. and therefore... Um, uh, they get stuck hmm. and it's one of the things so with the business obviously a lot of what we do is what I call the gift of time hmm. which is for a business that is you know that bit bigger just needs somebody to just look after their content for them be that you know blogs be that I mean I've got a couple where I just simply look after all of their website blogs um, social media all of that kind of stuff um, but I also do coaching for people um, I'm not a qualified coach, but just helping people unpick what they could be doing. Mm. Um, so, training courses, sitting with people, doing planning days, those sorts of things to help people realise, particularly the very small businesses who haven't got the budgets to have a big marketing department, have somebody do it for them, know they need to do it for themselves, but have just got to that point where they just don't know what to do. 
and helping people just make a start, get started, get consistent, which is really key with content. Yeah. Um, that's that's part of what the business does as well because. So, so you would sorry, so you would physically go into somebody's business, sit down with them in the. Yeah. Yeah. Spend a day. Um, just ma- up, you know, running a workshop if it's you know three or four businesses together, or just doing it one on one with people mm. if that's what they want to do, helping them understand what they've got, what they can do, and then plan out how they get it done because the, there's this and this is an old concept from from my consulting days. You do a lot of opening out sometimes, and this is another way that people can get stuck is that there's you need to do more with your content right well I could do social media I could do blogging I could do podcasts I could do an online training course I could do a website I could do I could write a book I could do ebooks I could do brochures like and suddenly you've got this huge pile of I've got no time to do any of this mm. and therefore you don't do any of it and helping people do the opening out so you look at all these wonderful things you could be doing mm. now let's pick one and just I, do one of them because I best you in that situation when you open up you can be People can be overawed by it all and think, oh, I've completely got, oh overwhelming. I'm not going to do anything because my head's completely just exploding. Completely overwhelming. So then it's about saying, well, which of these adds the biggest value to the audience you most want to reach? Mm. And just helping people do that objective, stand back, work it out. Okay, this is the one I'm going to work on. Just someone who can do that objection. And again, it's a cons- it, that's a consulting skill, really. Mm. That, that, that was a lot of what you, you do as a consultant, is you stand back just a bit. You understand the business, but you're just that little bit detached so you can see it from a different perspective. And in those meetings, do you find that uh, when the business owner's talking about their business, they perhaps don't realise the goal that they've got. They don't realise what they've just... When you talk to a business owner about their business, what happens more than anything else is they light up. Small business Mm. owners particularly, people who run their own business, who started their own business, rather than those who are employed, Mm. love what they do with a passion. And they light up when they talk about it. And they're excited about what they're doing. They're excited about the way they help other people. They're excited about, um, you know, if they're the person who's, who sells novelty gifts, they're ex- they love it the day someone comes in and finds the perfect present, yeah. be that giraffe-inspired. <laughs> um, or, you know, has, is a fancy duck. There's a, do you know there's a company that does nothing but sell ducks? Uh, I do now. <laughs> and that's, they love that. They're really excited about ducks. Mm. And they know that there are other people who love ducks. So for them, providing the perfect duck to a Pete Cohen or to somebody who's in Pete Cohen's coaching group, because we're all obsessed about ducks there, um, thrills them. It lights, they light up when they talk about it. Mm. And this is what you find. And when you talk to a business owner and you can see them lighting up, you think, right, that's what we need to capture and get in front of your audience, your prospect, your customer. I bet they love that process as well because, you know, you, 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 start, you start a business, you're passionate, you, you're, you've got a, a skill that you want to give the world or a trade or whatever it may be. And, you know, the, the, then perhaps the enthusiasm and the working world slightly chips away and you kind of lose, you, one may lose sight of, why you did it in yeah, the first place. Just that. Yes and no. 
I mean, it's my experience as a business owner, as well as obviously talking with a lot of other business owners. What happens is you start the business, and then what you discover there's a couple of things you do, particularly if you've come from it from from the corporate world and the employee world. The first realization is there's nobody else but me. So the first time that happened for me was when um, an invoice wasn't paid on time, and Back in the days of, you know, big corporate world of the PwCs and the IBMs and the PA Consultings, you've just ring up credit control, that team of a thousand people or whatever it is, and say, could you just follow this invoice up? And you're looking at this invoice saying, right, well, who am I going to pass this to? Mm. And now you think, okay, well, I am also the credit control department. I've now got to phone up and say, you haven't paid your invoice. Thank you very much. Um, or you, you know, the printer's not working. Who's going to fix the print? Well, nobody yeah, but me. Yeah. Uh, and you suddenly realise that all of those really comfortable functions that just, you know, the magic pixies make happen, and it's not the magic pixies, it's a good set of systems and processes, frankly, uh, that have made it happen. You suddenly appreciate that there's nobody else. So that's the first reality. And the second reality is the business doesn't come galloping towards you. The, there's a saying that an over, overnight <laughs> success takes 10 years. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Just like J.K. Rowling. And I'm good and I'm, I'm brilliant at my job. But so and you, you suddenly should... realise how damned hard this is. And you're working every hour. You're working you know, 10 hours a day and then the evening comes and you think, right, now I need to do the bookkeeping. Or, you know, do the admin or pay the bills or uh, do the housework. All of those things. And you just realise just how tough it is. And that dents your confidence and you stop remembering just how good at what you are, what it is that you do, that you are. Mm. And you are good at what you do, but it gets tough. And that can make your head go down. And that's where networking is fantastically valuable for that. So I'm a passionate, net I'm, a, I'm a networking floozy really. Because, and it is about, you know, building relationships and maybe one or two people will work with you but it's also about being able to chat to somebody else who's been there and done that mm. and who's who's been through some of the pain that you're going through and who said you know yeah they all look like they've got it all worked out but they have those days where they're thinking oh I made a terrible mistake should I just go and get a job yeah. <laughs> should I just go and be a traffic warden or something you know because they feel it's tough mm. it's tough out there when you're doing it for yourself. And you hit all of those obstacles of people who don't pay invoices. You hit the obstacles of a client who says, yes, I want to work with you, and then suddenly they change their mind. Um, I, have an, I have an accountant client who signed a massive client. It was fantastic. And then, unfortunately, their business went bust. Mm. You know, and that's a big client disappears. Or, yeah, you know, and it's, it's difficult it's really difficult out there. And, you know, the, the current economic climate makes it more difficult because everyone's facing all of this uncertainty. We'll wait until after Brexit. They said last January, and now it's a year later. We'll wait until, until after Brexit in October, and then it was put... And we'll wait until after the election. Now we're waiting till after Christmas. Mm. Now, then we'll wait until the new financial year and the next Brexit and the next thing. And next the, round, yeah. Yeah, very, very tough. Very tough. So people are hesitating and, and it knocks on into, 
you know, so I'm a relatively small business, I'm not directly impacted, but my clients are, and if they're impacted, then they're less likely to... Yeah. So the whole economy slowly slides, sort of grinds to a halt, and it's, you know, people don't sell their houses, so that affects estate agents and painters and decorators and builders and all of the people who'd then be doing the next step. Mm. So it's tough out there. So that toughness you find has chiselled down the confidence of the yeah. people? And as a result, so, so part of what I do is to say, well, what can we do now? And I've learnt that from being coached and from being part of the coaching work that I do. And I work with several coaches now in different ways and in different spheres, you know, who, who specialise in different areas. But it helps me recognise what's going on for the businesses that I work for mm-hmm. to say, well, what can we do now? right now that will make a difference what value can you add that will get someone coming to you Mm. it's part of the jigsaw it's not all of it but it's part of the jigsaw to help them gain their own confidence to get out there and share to recognize that content's not just about marketing Uh, i mean content isn't marketing but content marketing is obviously a part of the marketing picture but it's also about what you do with your customers Mm. someone's signed up with you as a business they've made a big investment that's quite nerve-wracking. So what can you do to assure them that they've made the mm. right decision with an onboarding sequence, with a pack that says, here, you've signed up with me. Mm. If, you, you know, if you've signed up with an independent financial advisor. So an onboarding sequence, what does that mean? Sorry? Right, so an onboarding sequence would be um, a series of emails or letters or a little package that says, here you go, welcome for having bought my product, my service. You've made the right choice and here's a few things to prove it with you know, an email to explain what it's like to work with them or testimonials from other people who've done it or um, just things to help them make mm. the most of what they've done. Or, we forget that, don't we? we, 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 we very we're frequently. Always, we're always, well, not always, but the majority of the time I'm on that side of the buying sequence and you think... Great, they've signed the contract, they've bought the product. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, know in my, I know in my head that I'm going to work my backside off of these people and I'm going to add... In my head. But they don't. And it is so much easier to sell to someone who's already bought from you than to find someone new. Mm. So if by doing a great piece of one one great piece of work, they say, right, next time I need something like this, I know exactly where to come to. And they come to you. And again, this is where networking helps. So uh, with clients who are doing other things... You know, I'm in the position to say, I know somebody who can help you with X. So if someone was coming to me and said, I want to do a podcast, I could say, well, why don't I put you in touch with with Dan? Dan does a podcast. I'm sure he'd be happy to chat to you about his experiences Mm -hmm. and what he's done and how he's done it. And that puts them in contact with you. And it's that kind of... um, I mean, BNI calls it giver's gain. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, the sort of the official word is reciprocity, which is a bit of a godful, but you know it's a nice <laughs> multi-syllable word. Um, all of those sorts of things that by helping somebody, they will remember that I helped them. Mm. Is it Maya Angelou who says people will never remember what you do or what you say, but they'll remember how they made you feel? Yes, 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 yes. I didn't. I mean, I've never heard of her, but then when she died. Two years ago? Yeah, not that long ago. And yeah. suddenly she's come up the, you know, pity she had to die before people people right. suddenly remembered yeah. her. But yes, she. I mean, that's the kind of thing that she said, that, that 
it's and that's not just about being a nice person and all of those kinds of being an inspiring person but people remember you if you just help them out mm. you know if you just say look can I help you here is there something I can help you with um, and it just it gives people that opportunity to remember you and that's so that's customer care look after your customers because then they'll come back mm. and content can help massively with that and it's I, I bang on about it a lot now because it's m massively underused massively underused and the other place that content has a massive role but people don't think about is staff interesting your staff if you've got people working for you just because you understand what you want your business to do and where you want it to go doesn't mean they've got it they understand it or they're in the same place so how well are you communicating your values how well do they understand what you're doing how well do they know what the plans are and content plays a massive role there as well. People forget about it. The moment you've got more than about 10 people, you don't have the capability to communicate to them one-on-one. -on -one. You need to start thinking about staff engagement as a content piece, a newsletter, intranet. We never thought of that. You know, you can do, you can do podcasts for your team, training courses for your team. What you put in your employee handbook is content. And if you haven't got an employee care handbook, why the hell not? I'm too busy. One's, one's too busy. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Because that we, you, that's so interesting because because employ, employees, you know, want to know what you know why they're getting out of bed in the morning. What what they buy, what are they buying into? You know, I'm yeah. probably, I work for a company that's perhaps I may not use these words, but linked to my values or mm -hmm. my. Uh, am I just here to make the company money or am I here for a purpose? I'm like, do you know what I mean? It's and it's, it, it's, it's so important with staff. Mm. It's so important that they understand what's important to you as a business owner. Because, it, it, who is it? It's probably Steve Co Stephen Covey who said, or it might be Jim Rohn, some, one of that, that era of, of uh, gurus was saying either you're working on your own fortune or you're working on somebody mm. else's. And what you have to remember is your employees are working on your fortune, not theirs. What they've done is they've taken a job for a steady income. And you can, I don't blame anybody for doing that. I did it for 20 years. I liked the money's good in consulting. I liked having the money. Um, I'm paid a fraction of what I was paid as a consultant. An absolute pittance in comparison. I mean, if you look at a business owner and think, well, you must be rich. Ha, 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 ha. No. Even if a business is making a profit, the person who doesn't get paid is often the business owner mm. because they can that you can't not pay your staff. That's just not done. Mm. Um, they don't stay apart from anything else. It's breach of contract. You know, so you have to pay your staff. And therefore, if your business is having a bad month, it's the person who doesn't get paid is you. Mm. So, um, that's a harsh reality. It's a very it? harsh yeah. reality, and any business owner who's listening to this will be nodding and say, "Yep, yeah, bloody yep, yeah, I'm the one who never takes any money out of my business." Um, it is. It, it's really tough to do that, but what you have to remember is that they've get they they have not. They're not doing this because necessarily because they're passionate about it. Yeah. They're doing it for other reasons. So find out what it is they are passionate about. Understand what they enjoy. 
what it is that you can do to get the most out of them. And the easiest way to find out, ask them. Mm. Seems like a really odd question. <laughs> talk, but, talk to your members of staff. Yeah, I know. How, exactly. How you know, they're not going to think you're prying if you ask a question like, how do you like to work? What do you enjoy? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What are you passionate about? You may find it's something that is completely nothing to do with work, and therefore work helps it because it's a means to an end. So, for example, if, if we take an example like my brother, my brother's passionate about his family, his kids. Everything he did while he was, he was in the big high-powered job and then when he got a job, a different type of job, was because he loved his boys mm -hmm. and he was doing what he wanted for them and he wanted something that meant he could spend time with them. That's what he was passionate about. And therefore, you can then, as the business owner, as the employer make sure that you're building that into account mm. by taking care of what they really what really matters to them and it might be their family it might be that they love to travel so making sure that um, they've got the opportunities to take long holidays one great big long holiday so they can go to those epic places and climb Kilimanjaro or go to base camp in Everest rather than well you can only take a week at a time and things those are the kinds of things because that's what's important to them that could make a difference to how committed they are for you. And I, I'm not necessarily saying that you've got to do that particular mm. example, but those are the kinds of things you can be thinking about. Well, if that person is passionate about that, mm. then what can I do to meet their, their needs and meet their passions and their, what's important to them? And bringing that out in sort of internal content. And then they will be passionate about what I do because mm. they'll understand that's what I'm there for. And then how can content help with that? What can I do for that? Does that mean that, you know, if, if family's important, we don't hold meetings, our staff meetings at certain times of day so that they can get home, pick the kids up, all of that, all of that. I mean, this is sort of, we're sort of blurring into my old job, which is obviously staff engagement was part of what I did. Um, but content plays a part. And communication to your staff plays a massive part. So think about the internal content as well as the external. you've been an absolute star um, again with any self-respecting podcast we have to top and tell every podcast with where people can find you mm -hmm. um, so if you want to tell there's lots of ways to find me I said I was a networking floozy so BNI, 4N um, um, I pop up on those but I mean the, the, the main route to find me is obviously my website the business is called Creative Words the website is creativewords.cc dot com and gone um, <laughs> of course um, but cc being my initials so creativewords.cc uh, you can find me on facebook on linkedin um, i'm on both of those platforms as well so i'm 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 a bit ubiquitous in the general area um, or you can find me lurking by the fire here in the Volmers club so um, but but yes main, mainly the website check me out there creativewords.cc and uh, reach out and get in touch Thanks, Kate. It's been marvellous. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. 
Hey everybody, you're listening to Camology, the Cambridge podcast, and in this third episode, I interview an amazing lady called Kate Carruth from Creative Words. I hope you like it.